Oh, yeah. Welcome, 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 everyone, to the Daily Hi-Fi Podcast. We do this every Monday, 4 p.m. Pacific Standard Time. My name is Chana. Yeah, I am welcome, the Techno welcome, Dad. Welcome, and everyone. we've got our special to guest. You got to turn that down, Joey. Monday, <laughs> a special guest today, Paul Barton from PSB and Dave Morrison from ISO Acoustics, along with the Daily Hi-Fi crew. What's up, gentlemen? How are you guys doing? Good. What's going on, man? What's up? Good. All right. Got some right. feedback there. I think I was trying to watch a video. I don't know if you guys are hearing that. <laughs> but um, we're set now. We're good. We should be all good. Still trying to figure it out after uh, how many episodes now? I, I can't it's even count. Few. There's been too many. <laughs> too many. But it's all good. All good. Yeah. How are you guys doing today? I'm doing just fine. Very good. Here in my home now for almost a month. Wow! So, you got started late. We're we've been here six months, staying in. Oh, no. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I'm just so, this guy. Yeah. I guess Dave, you've been at home for the whole time, right? Yeah, I got back from Europe on uh, March 12th and went into hibernation and haven't come out since. There you go. Yeah. Yeah, I think um, I think we started on the 11th mm. here. But, yeah. I mean, we live in a ski resort town. And, and on top of everything, all that nonsense is going on, it's been snowing, like, a lot. Hmm. So we're, we're just inside anyway, you know. Um, mm -hmm. On the sunny days, we'd go to the ski resort, but that's closed, so... <laughs> So it's kind of it's kind of normal. My wife is is she's still having problems with it. I'm not. I'm like, yeah, we get to stay home. Cool. Already there. Yeah. Hey Ron, you got some some audio for celebrities in here. Are you excited? I'm I'm just beside myself. I'm just so thrilled, and it's an honor to be able to chat with you guys. And this is going to be a fun show. Oh, Absolutely. I'm hoping it will. Yeah. Yeah. No, it's going to be fantastic. When I told Ron, he was like, "Are you serious? The the Paul Barton? The Paul Barton yeah. yeah, yeah, I'm alive and well. That's great. And Dave, you're looking good over there too. Don't worry, I see you. Thank you. Got it's the piano you, back there. You? Got the cool lamp. Yeah, yeah. Cool like That's important. <laughs> see a guitar back there too. You play a lot. There's a few of them around here. Yeah, I play a lot, but play at it. Nice. That's awesome. <laughs> Oh, man. So, yeah, we got a lot of good questions. Uh, we have the chat, people in the chat over here. So there's six of us. So, you know, we're going to we're going to stay busy this whole time. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, no, definitely. And uh, um, Paul and Dave, if you just click on comments, you'll see the chats um, in your little. What is it? The live comments. So if you want to respond to any of those. Yeah, you can post it in in the little bottom box there. And uh, if there's one you want me to put on the screen, just let me know. Like there's a timestamp by it. Like as you see Derek's up there. So just let me know. Yeah. The time if you want uh, to see. So how, how long you guys known each other? Uh, we, we first met back in 19. I don't know, Dave, when was that? Like, <laughs> <laughs> it was the mid eighties. Mid eighties, oh, right? Yeah, longer than you thought. Yeah, indeed. All right. And, and, and I, how how did you guys I, meet? Well, Dave worked 
for the CBC, which is the Canadian Broadcasting Corporation in Canada here. It's similar to the BBC in England. Mm. And uh, Dave, well, you can tell the story, Dave. You worked with the CBC, and I, I did some work with the CBC, in particular when they were choosing studio monitors across the, the country in all of their studios to standardize their studio monitoring across the country, similar to what the BBC did many, many years before that. And these tests were all conducted at the National Research Council doing double blind screen listening tests and correlating that with measurements. And it was part of a large study of subjective versus objective loudspeakers. And Dave was keen, and I think you were building one of the studios at the time, right, at the CBC, Dave? Yeah, at the time, the CBC had 23 locations in Toronto. And so between the studios, radio and television, and data centers and um, shops for building sets and so on, they were all over the city. And in the back of the um, what used to be the women's, a women's college on Jarvis Street, was a chapel and they were building, we were building a, or renovating a radio drama studio. And so they, the NRC had done this evaluation. They came up with the PSB speaker that the CBC was going to adapt. And I heard it in the, um, in the studio and wanted to get a pair for myself. So I had the opportunity to meet Paul and I told him I was excited. I bought these speakers. I was bringing all this equipment home to test them and set them up. And he said, I'll come around to your home and I'll set them up with you. Nice. And that was, <laughs> um, so it turned out to be a, a 101 on speaker design that evening. But um, we were listening to it and watching the printouts on the screen. We were using pink noise and playing with them. And Paul made a comment. He said, you know, the largest variable is out of my control. Mm. And I thought, well, bloody hell, I spent a lot of money on these speakers. I hope it's not, uh, I hope we don't have to roll dice or something. To get right. them to work. But he said, no, it's what people do with them, how they set them up. Mm. And so that night as we moved them around in that infinitesimal way and I could hear the difference and I could see the graphs, it was a little bit like a sailor learning how to read the wind off of other boats and off the shoreline. And I was hooked. And nice. that's what really started this journey with uh, speaker stands and isolation and isoacoustics after that. Wow, that's amazing. And, that's Dave, amazing. and Dave would keep, you know, conversing with me over time, saying how he wanted to develop this product that uh, this was long before ISO even started. He was passionate about building stands that could better improve the performance of loudspeakers and Dave saw some of the lead that I took when I used the National Research Council in Ottawa mm. to do product development. Uh, he saw that as an opportunity to further investigate his product development using some of the techniques and some of the hardware and software that's available and the human resources that are, were available at the National Research Council. Not only was, is there a facility for doing testing, but there's also um, a huge body of, of um, PhDs that specialize in psychoacoustics, sound propagation, sound absorption, uh, controlling noise, doing hearing aid uh, 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 testing. Uh, they used to test all the hearing for, for, for the Canadian military 
at the National Research Council. And that was headed up by the head of the acoustics division. His name is Dr. Edgar Shaw. And Dr. Edgar Shaw was the head of the section, uh, acoustic section at the National Research Council that Floyd Toole worked with. And that's a familiar um, name? Yeah, that's where I met Floyd Toole. I met Floyd Toole in 1974. And in 1974, PSB was the first company to use that facility to do product development. In fact, they hadn't even set up an infrastructure in order for me to pay for the facility. So we had to sort of do it under the table for a while. And I wasn't even allowed to tell people I was using the facility. Not until the government realized that applied research might be a good reason to justify all the work and the cost of the National Research Council. So now they want to promote the fact that people like PSB, companies like PSB use the facility to do product development. And that continues to, to today. Uh, I can maybe show you some photographs oh, of, yeah. the, of the National Research Council that Dave and I use. Just give me a moment here. Donna, maybe you can pull, pull up that question about why does Canada punch above its weight in the audio world? <laughs> and uh, I've Indeed. seen, I always wondered, like, how come so many companies are coming out of Canada? You know, I'd get all these speakers like, there's a lot from Canada. What's going on over there? Well, I think a lot of it has to do with the fact that um, NRC opened their doors to doing this kind of research and, and product development. And that is, in this case, was to correlate uh, objective measurements, which is measuring the speakers in a, a controlled environment like an anechoic chamber, or and uh, doing listening tests where people don't, it's sort of like in the medical industry, um, when they're trying to test a, a new drug, they will give the doctors two vials, one's labeled A and one's labeled B. And the doctors must give the drugs to two different patients, but the doctors don't know what drug A is and what drug B is. They can only observe what drug A is doing to the patient or what drug B is doing to the patient. Only the drug company knows what A and B is. That's called a double blind screen test. And we do the same test with loudspeakers in rooms where we put the speaker behind the screen. An operator sets up where the speakers are and what how they're all connected to be switched between say A, B, and C. And then another person actually operates the system that does the switching so that the person who's operating the switching uh, and the listeners are also allowed to do switching at some point during the experiment. They document or write down. Ooh. Everybody's alerts are going on. Alerts. Come on. So, yeah, so uh, um, we, we basically do a double blind screen screen test on loudspeakers. And this particular body of work that was happening at the time between 1974 and ni roughly 1985, when I first met Dave, was all of this listening that was being done. And no other Canadian company was participating in this until 1982. And in 1982, Paradigm started using the facility, 
uh, API, which had brands called Energy and Mirage, mm-hmm. started mm-hmm. using the facility. And another company in northern Ontario near Huntsville called Axiom, mm-hmm. uh, Ian Calhoun, started using the facility to develop loudspeakers. So, and then another company called uh, Rega Camber out of Montreal started using NRC to develop loudspeakers. And then a small handful of professional companies. One in particular was a company out of Ottawa called SOTA, State of the Art Electronics. Hmm. Uh, and uh, that was uh, that was operated by a, an engineer called Claude Fortier. And he actually was the designer of all the high-powered mm-hmm. studio monitors that the CBC used in their high-powered studios. Very interesting. Uh, yeah. Let me just let me just get up some photographs. Of yeah, let's the, take a look. I saw a, a few pictures here. I'm not sure. What are we looking at here? Okay, I'm going to have to share. Let me find this again. Maybe I can get that service where you come to the house, too, after this is all over. <laughs> exactly. I, I, have, I have some speakers over here that are yours, so maybe we can do that thing, too. Open up a can of worms, right? <laughs> Paul, Paul's new service business. Hey, Dave, Dave, what have you noticed as far as like the change in the industry from back then to now? Like, what are some of the changes you've seen? Wow. Well, I originally I was on the broadcasting side, right? So I was in, uh, and when we started with Iceville Acoustics, we started on the studio studio side of things. So it's only in the last number of years that we've moved into the hi-fi too. But um, I don't know. I find a lot more people are looking at listening to wallpaper now than really appreciating the high fidelity. Mm. Don't you find that to be the case? Yeah, I know what you mean. I know what you mean. What do you mean by listening to wallpaper specifically? So I don't, well, I don't assume. Appreciating, not really looking for the high resolution. Like elevator music. Yeah, background. Mm. Wallpaper music, elevator music, same thing. Gotcha. So they're not really tuned into the music. They're just no. it's just on. They don't seem to have the same hi-fi passion that we had back then, I think, or at least as widespread. Yeah. So what are we looking at here on the screen? Well, this is uh, there are two basic chambers that are utilized to do research. This is a very large chamber. These wedges that you see here are uh, six feet deep. Hmm. And so they're they're three foot. You can see the people standing in the center of the oh, image. The back, yeah, yeah. You, you can see how small they are, and each one of those squares is three feet. So you can see that the width of the chamber is quite wide, and this chamber is pretty much flat down to twenty hertz. So we use this chamber to calibrate to another chamber. Uh, let me just switch over to the chamber. This chamber is the, I don't have the, oh, Dave, you have some good pictures of it, don't you? Mm-hmm. Uh, I think I can show those as well. Um, yeah, so I noticed in the other one, how does the uh, the floor look like a flat floor? I've seen others where it looked like almost like you're standing on a net. And then it looks like they have more yeah. absorption on the bottom too. Yeah. The day I took this picture. Mm-hmm. They had the two-pie floor in. Mm. That fl- that floor comes out, and there's aircraft wire screen below yeah. it that you, that you walk on. 
And so there are wedges below that, the same as the wedges on the wall. Wow. Yeah, that's what I figured. So so the day I went to take these pictures, it was being used for another application mm. where they, they need a, what they call a two-pi. In other yeah. words, it's not spherically anechoic. It's only half a sphere anechoic. And one wall is reflected. So if, if you wanted to simulate an in-wall loudspeaker, you would put it in the floor. Amazing. I, yeah. Paul, do and, you still have access to anechoic chambers when it comes to your designs and working on speakers? Do you still have access? To yeah, a lot I, of I frequent this chamber. This is the control room. This picture was taken quite some time ago. Um, you can see we're using a, a CRT monitor. <laughs> <laughs> um, and there's also the monitor up on the top shelf that you can see is actually a, a video camera in the chamber so I can see what I'm measuring and there's a laser beam on the microphone that allows me to see where the microphone is positioned on the baffle of the loudspeaker I see yeah yeah and then you see here in the center there's a microphone preamp just below the speaker and there are there's a, a box above it with all these black dots across it, those represent a microphone. And there are five microphones in the chamber. And uh, I can scan all five microphones and look in real time at the listening window of a loudspeaker. Wow. And it's a very powerful tool when you're doing tuning. Because yeah. when you look at the speaker on axis, one measurement, you're going to see artifacts that aren't happening in other positions around the speaker due to a phenomenon we call diffraction, which is when the sound emanates from the driver and the energy moves across the baffle at the speed of sound in air, when it reaches the edge of the baffle, there's a dramatic change in impedance. And that creates another source of sound, which eventually radiates from the speaker and causes constructive and destructive interference because with two sources, you get interference based on the distance you are and the distance that they are apart. So um, I want to get rid of that because what I want to see in a loudspeaker measurement is I want to see the resonances which occur everywhere around the loudspeaker, mm -hmm. whereas diffraction only occurs when the direct sound and the diffraction off the edge happen to coincide where you're sitting causing either constructive or destructive interference. And I want to get rid of that because in a real world, that particular phenomena is one that you don't actually hear because it gets masked by all the other reflections that are around you. Gotcha. Wow. And that can and the, be calculated, right? Oh yeah. You can, you can, a lot of these uh, box simulation programs do have software uh, utilities that allow you to predict where these are going to, happen in three-dimensional space. Is that why a lot of the speakers have, you know, um, curves on the, on the baffle and stuff like that? Absolutely. The uh, severity of the diffraction of an edge is directly proportional to the rate of change of the edge. So if it's a right angle, that's the most dramatic. Sure. If it's mm. so, if it's softer, then the rate of change is gradual, so the effect is less severe. So those Kef guys know what they're doing with those LS fifties, I guess, huh? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> wow, where did that come from, man? No, because you know it's curved. 
Yeah. Yeah. So do you want? Curves, yeah. Now, are you sharing my screen right now? There we go. There we go. Okay. The, did you, were you looking at the picture before just now? Yeah. 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 We saw that. Okay. So I'm just going to go to this one. Remember, I said they were doing double blind screen listening tests. Yes. Oh yeah. wow. There well, it is. this is the room, and you can see there's a little uh, indicator behind the screen at the top, which is currently speaker one is turned on. Okay. And there are four of those. And then in the middle between the two chairs, you'll see a box, which allows the lis listener to switch. Gotcha. And, and the microphone there is to set equal volume for each loudspeaker because sensitivity wow. is not a, not a timbral indicator because right. we want everything to be equal including the volume of the loudspeaker. Sure. Except the only thing we change is the actual speaker. So that sure. the only, and, and that's, that's good science. Good science mm -hmm. experiment yeah. only has one variable. I slide it down to one. Yep. Teacher, I have a, I have a question. <laughs> <laughs> um, so that's the listening room. In fact, this room eventually became the recommended IEC listening room for doing speaker evaluation. Wow. You'll, you'll so notice, go ahead. You're, you're mentioning uh, differences in, in volume. What amount of, how many decibels would be the difference between somebody preferring one over the other? Like how accurate would that need to be? Within a quarter dB. Quarter wow. dB. Yeah. Wow. That's crazy. That's pretty precise. Yeah. So That's we crazy. use, yeah. we use this, we use this microphone here to set up the equal levels for all the speakers. Nice. And uh, you'll notice that the room has treatment on it. You don't see it behind the screen, sure. but there's a there's a great a drape behind the screen, and behind that screen, where there used to be windows, there's actually membrane diaphragms that are tuned to get rid of standing waves in the room, and there are also uh, absorbers on the left wall. You'll see up in the top, and there are absorbers on the right wall near the top, and there. Are, uh, this picture actually was taken during the process and there were actually more absorbers there were some um traps in different places now that's not to say that you need to do this to your room what we wanted to do was be able to make the experiment more efficient because if we really want to make only one variable then only one speaker or two speakers for that matter and one listener in one position would merit a good experiment that didn't have any outside variables. What we tried to do here, this was Floyd Toole's work, what Floyd tried to do here was to make all three positions have roughly the same low frequency transfer function mm -hmm. so that you could do three listeners at the same time in the room and get more, more efficient results. Gotcha. And the room was treated to accommodate the fact that we wanted three listeners to be able to hear the same thing. But we also invited listeners to change seats during the listening experience in yeah. case there were some small differences that they noted and could could take out of the equation if they heard differences when they moved into different locations. As you can see, it's not an easy control test to do. Yeah, sure. And yeah. it takes a long time to establish good data out of these tests. Well, I don't want to get overly technical, but I, I have a quick question about the, the microphone. And um, it's just not every day I get to talk to somebody who's done these tests. So I'm curious, 
when you're saying they're calibrated to a certain uh, decibel level, is that for a specific frequency or is it uh, averaged over, uh, you know, the full range of the speakers? Like, uh, or is it, you know, what range of frequencies is it? We use um, C weighted mm -hmm. uh, pink noise to set the levels, okay. which is uh, the, the highs are rolled off and the lows are rolled off. So that uh, we as human beings, uh, if you if you were to ask a group of people to listen to something, and and if you boost the bass, mm -hmm. they will say it has more bass. If you boost the treble, they will say it has more treble. Mm -hmm. If you boost the mid range, they'll often say it's louder. Mm -hmm. So 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 um, so uh, so what we do is try and focus on the area where the perceived loudness is. It's very hard sometimes to make two speakers sound the same volume sure. because because of their frequency response differences can be so much different. It's hard to say which one is louder or which one sounds colored. And sometimes that's a challenge when doing these tests. Thank you for answering that one. So I got a question for you, Paul, looking at the three seats. So let's say you bring three listeners in, they listen to a selection um, and then they're you know free to choose between speaker one, two. You said there's four, right? Usually four. It could, could be less, but four, no more than four. So during that test, do the participants, do they kind of communicate or are they just kind of writing down their thoughts? Um, yeah. yeah we what, what does that process look like for you? Well, we urge the listeners to refrain from comments sure. or, or body language. Sure. That's awesome. Because that can influence the individual's judgments. Good. So, um, yeah, it, it's it's one of the prerequisites for getting in the test is that you gotcha. you cannot show body language. It, I can tell you some stories. You know, we we used we used to we used we used to bring some uh, audiophile, uh, and I won't mention any names, uh, audiophile magazine reviewers into mm -hmm. this environment, and I brought just about everyone that I could through throughout the years. Many of which are currently still active in our industry. Mm -hmm. that that have experienced this this environment and i can tell you that some people uh one of the things that we found with these tests is listeners that aren't accustomed in particular to this room or mm -hmm. accustomed to doing this kind of test find themselves um in an awkward position because now not only are they judging speakers mm -hmm. but with the experience that we have Right. We are judging them as <laughs> exactly. listeners. Exactly. And, <laughs> and so it, some some reviewers wouldn't come to that realization until they actually <laughs> walked into the room and realized, holy crap. Yeah, it's like, this is real. This is they're, they're going to be testing me. That's funny. As well. And, yeah, and, I've heard that too. I've heard when people say, oh, well, I can't do these tests because I get nervous. And so it's not yeah. accurate because I'm nervous. Yeah, well, yeah, that could be How true. Convenient. Yeah, that could be true. But, you know, just relax and have a listen. And I can I can tell you, well, what we found was the, uh, if we started in the morning, each round of listening would be about 20 minutes. Mm -hmm. So we do two rounds in the morning and then two rounds in the afternoon with a 20-minute break in, in each side uh, uh, between each listening session. And we'd have maybe three people come in, do the listening and we'd put some good speakers behind the screen and we were trying to get them to determine. And often I would put some of our products behind there and 
some of the products we know well behind the screen and mm -hmm. do comparisons. And um, we would always take the first round of testing and throw it out because listeners would come out of the first session if say there were four good loudspeakers behind the screen and they would be saying, I can't tell a difference between any of these. Wow. Mm. And, and, and I would say, okay, well, just go back in the room. We're going to juggle some things around. We'll change what one is to another number and you won't know which speaker is which com compared with the old test. And we'll start a new test. Gotcha. After they've had the first session and they go in the second session, what they end up doing is they're able to subtract the influence of the room, which they ah, were whoa. they were they were just adjusting to. Sure. And after the second round, they come out of the round saying, "You changed all those speakers because they sound <laughs> dramatically different." Wow. So, so there is a period when doing these tests mm. that you must adapt to the environment gotcha. because because the the room and the effect the room has initially can swamp what you're actually hearing in terms of accuracy. And, and that's part of the brain and the way we, we process. Is this Paul, the room Paul, that, has, that, that mechanically moves the speakers so that they're all in the same spot? No, I this was, that. That, that was that was done after Floyd went to Harmon mm -hmm. and he created the, um, the shuffling, which is the auto. What we have is uh, it's a turntable that's big enough to set four speakers on it. Nice. And, and, you, and you can turn the turntable. Cool. I want to live in that room. <laughs> <yeah>. <laughs> so, Paul, when they're doing that, are like, do you give them something to, like, is there a series of questions that you're asking them on a piece of paper or? Yeah, we give it... them, we give them score sheets. Okay. Gotcha. And at the beginning of the score sheet, we give them some help. Okay. in describing what the task at hand is and that we were trying to not say necessarily what they preferred. Right. Although the assumption I make when designing a loudspeaker is that they prefer that the speaker be a, a glass, a clear mm -hmm. glass sure. through which you see the original performance right. where there are no colorations, nothing added, nothing taken away. And so we tell the listeners, this is a, a test to, to, to determine how natural what gotcha. you're hearing sounds sure and and so the 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 listeners are given a description and we also help them out for early listeners or listeners that don't have a large experience with listening tests we give them a whole bunch of adjectives to help them to correlate and describe with common adjectives like boomy or tizzy or bright or dull or forward or backward or distant or open or closed. So we, we kind of give them all those adjectives in a list mm -hmm. that they can refer to when they're trying to express what it is they're hearing. Sure. And then they have. So musical is not on there or chocolatey. Well, well <laughs> that's speaker yeah. cables. Yeah. Well, what, what we do do is we have like these scale sliders on the sheet. One might say, closeness and farness so you can put a mark where it's either far or close we can say um uh bassy or too much mid-range or clarity or muff muddiness and they have sliders that they can score them on a scale of zero to ten mm. and then at the end they have two major questions which we use to accumulate the data one is pleasantness and one is 
accuracy mm-hmm. because they, they can be two different things. Um, so, uh, and we usually use accuracy as the score that we give that person gave to that speaker. But the, the reason we give all those other sliders is so that the guy can look back after he's compared speakers and he can compare, oh, that one was brighter than that one. And this one was, so he can, he has some kind of an organized way of listening that he can now come to a conclusion. And we ask the listener in a series of four tests, which is their preference, which is their second preference, their third preference, and their fourth preference. That's amazing. I love how controlled it is. They can't even do, you know, can't be like, hey, what do you think about these? These sound pretty good, right? No, you're not allowed. No, no. (laughs) No head nodding. That's amazing. That's pretty cool. Are you still sharing my screen? Uh, I took it off for a second. Let's go back to it. There we go. Okay, this is the outside of the <laughs> of the M thirty seven. Big box. That's it just where the like my my uh my storage space. But okay, you say, yeah. how, you say how tall that room is. <laughs> yeah, it's a big place, and and uh, those big doors beside the van. This place in the winter time, just imagine like four feet of snow everywhere. Sure. So uh, I would bre- drive into this opening. So I could do all my unloading and loading inside the building. Without freezing your butt off, huh? Yeah, it was kind of cool. This next picture uh, is, in fact, an aerial view of the whole of the NRC that is centered in Ottawa, Canada, the capital of Canada. And you can see at the top of the image, there is like a waterway. That's the Ottawa River which separates Ontario from Quebec. And this is a campus with about 65 buildings. And included in those buildings is aerospace, building research, agricultural. Um, they have a, uh, in, uh, in the middle of this image, it's hard to tell, there's a very long building, which they actually have uh, a duplicate of the uh, St. Lawrence Seaway inside there to model how the water is controlled and flowed. And um, yeah, so this is, this is the campus and the facility that I've been going to and Dave has been going to for um, since 1974. So So I have, I have two questions that uh, about some of your latest products that I have in for review and then afterwards i want to move on and talk about uh iso acoustic stuff but first i want to ask you uh you're talking about the room and you're showing us all these uh photos and these have something called room feel right is that related what is what is room feel when it comes to these m4u8s that i'm wearing here okay um and also so that's part one and then part two so you can just go on is uh i have the alpha the p5s mm -hmm. and i was just kind of curious like um, you know, what was the question here? Original Alpha speakers put PSB speakers on the map. So what is so special about this series and the current P5s? And I want to add to that, like, how does that relate? Because you said that uh, this is Canada's version of the BBC. And of course, BBC is known for like uh, LS35As as their monitors. So kind of relate all those things. So those are my two questions, three questions. That's a pretty, those are pretty loaded questions. <laughs> I know, I know. I don't know. <laughs> It's all right. You can handle it. <laughs> yeah. I mean, just... 20 words or less. Okay. Well, um, 
the room feel is you, you saw that listening room I had up there mm-hmm. in, in conjunction with that listening room beside that room in the facility was um, another, actually another listening room, but the, that listening room was built for a project that PSB paradigm API, which is energy Mirage and soda, the high powered studio monitor manufacturer that I mentioned earlier, we formed a company called CARC, the Canadian Audio Research Consortium. And in 1987, we started a project which was called Athena. And uh, the, uh, the pursuit of Athena was to develop the criteria and the equalization for doing room correction. And we were trying to develop a loudspeaker Keep in mind, this was back in 1987 um, with DSP to do room correction. And we, you know, we over the three and a half years we did this project, we invested between the three companies in Canada. We put about a million dollars into it to to come up with what we thought was the target curve for doing EQ of a speaker in a room. Um, If you think about this for a moment, if you put a typical loudspeaker in a typically good room and compare the frequency response of that speaker averaged in the listening position to the frequency response in an anechoic chamber, you'll find, you'll find that there is a distinct difference in how the direct radiating loudspeaker performs in a room with reflections than it does with a room that has no reflections like an anechoic chamber. And speakers in general are designed to be flat on axis in an anechoic chamber, but typically speakers that we listen to, we call direct radiators, which means they have drivers on one baffle. They're not an omnidirectional loudspeaker. So at low frequencies, a direct radiating loudspeaker radiates in 360 degrees quite efficiently. But as the frequencies get higher, the directivity gets narrower and narrower. So if you took it, took the total energy that speaker puts out in a sphere, which is essentially what you hear when it's in a room because you get all these reflections, it's not flat. If, if, if this is the low frequency, let's see which way you're doing it. If, if, this, is the, <laughs> if this is the low frequency, Right. The room, the room actually causes increases in gain, hmm. and at high frequencies, because you're getting all these reflections at, at lows and mid frequencies, hmm. and the directivity is really good at low frequencies, you get more of that energy that you hear. You actually hear a bit of the direct sound in combination with the sound power that the speaker hmm. has, the total energy it puts out. And so, if you're putting a speaker and EQing it in a room. You want to make sure that you've taken into account what the room has done. So a flat loudspeaker playing back in a room, a good room, will have a boost at the low end and a cut at the high frequency because of the directivity and the omnidirectional at low frequencies. What is that correction? It's called room, it's called room feel. Ah, so, so that's a house, like a house curve almost. It's a house curve that was determined through research. And we did this with double blind screen listening tests with students that we paid to come in after school and do listening tests 
and tell us which ones they liked the best. And we created different target curves to see whether they thought that sounded most natural to them. Based, and, and then that, that criteria I used because if you think about it, we're listening to music that was d designed or mixed to be played back on speakers in a room. Mm -hmm. Correct. Headphones do not have a room. So I put the room curve into the headphones. Amazing. And that's what that's what's called room feel. Room feel. On the next version, can you make it sound like as if the speakers are far away from me too? Well, next uh, yeah. Well, there there is some research being done on getting yeah. the sound getting the sound outside your head. And many companies like Smythe in England have been doing it, mm. but the the hardware and software is a pretty heavy lift. But given the DSP power of these chips that we're now using in headphones, it won't be long before we'll be able to make headphones behave uh, so that the sound listening to music that was recorded to be played back on speakers in a room can sound like the sound is outside your head like right. it is in a room right. when, you, when you're wearing headphones. So it has the sound outside the head. One thing that you need to do in order for that phenomena to work, guys, is you also have to have a head tracker. Mm. If, you, if you don't have a head tracker, trying to get the sound outside your head will be almost impossible because the, the brain needs that tracking in order for it to think that it's in three dimensions. Interesting. Amazing. So it's no problem if you're using, if you have a binaural recording. Now, if you have a binaural recording, that all bets are off, but you still must keep your head steady Otherwise, the illusion will collapse. Your brain yeah. will say, well, wait a minute. You moved your head, but the sound didn't change. What's going on here? And it will give you false cues based Amazing. on that. Amazing. I like these. I need yeah. to still review these, but yeah. And then about these speakers. About, about these speakers. I don't know, Chana, can you show them? So you don't want to hear something kind of funny. It's totally not sound related. Well, I guess kind of sound related. And I do have a question about them. Is uh, so I have the PSB Alpha P5s here, and one of the things I was most impressed with is this grill. I love this grill. Oh, the magnetic grill. It's like so thin. Well, the, the key there, the key there was to create a very fine perf, so that the open area was about. I think the open area is about forty percent, and have it as close to the tweeter as I can make it, mm -hmm. because if if the reflection occurs at a frequency whose wavelength is proportional to the distance it is from the source, then th the reflection will not occur in the audible range because the first quarter frequency, let's say at 20 kilohertz, is an eighth of an inch. So if as long as the, the grill is closer or as close to it as eighth of an inch, yeah. nothing below that will reflect off of it. Paul, are you, are you telling me that it's okay if I keep these grills on when I'm listening? It doesn't measure any different with and without. Amazing. Yeah. Mm. Well, that's, that's, all, that's always one of my objectives. Some people want to listen to it, and I'd hate to think that, you know, most people would listen to it with the grill on. Most dealers would demonstrate it with the grill off. Right. So would I want the consumer to be auditioning what he's going to take home and listen to with the grill, with the grill off? Best thing to do is make it so the grill is the same with and, with, with and without. I figured I was always I was about to do some measurements to see what kind of difference. But, you know, that's amazing because I have kids, so I have to keep the grill on. And a lot of times, you know, I can only take them off at night when they're sleeping or something like that. But 
Yeah, that's awesome. So um, is that, the other question was how uh, how the Alpha line put oh. you guys on the map? Well, Alpha, um, it was a kind of an interesting story. I, I was asked to develop a loudspeaker that had no bells and whistles, just performance, and at a very affordable price. So the way we constructed it, the components I used, the way I installed the components, the fact that the grill was not removable, it was just wrapped around the baffle, no extra cost. That was the beginning of the Alpha. And I was at a show in Las Vegas that year, 1991, when we were demonstrating the Alpha and I was using a song by Bella Fleck called oh, yeah. the the flight the the, the flight hippo. of the the, the flight hippo. of the, the cos yeah. the flight yeah. of the cosmic yeah. hippo, which has got a lot of bass on it. Yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah, yeah, great. And so I was. We had our own booth in the ballroom at the Mirage Hotel at CES in January of '91, and we were demonstrating the Alpha. And uh, I went out into the hallway just to take a breather. It was I was doing a lot of demos, and I bumped into. I saw it on his badge. I bumped into, um, what's his name? Jack English, Jack English, who used to write for Stereophile magazine. He was a freelance writer, and he had his badge on Stereophile. So we just got talking, and, and he, he said, he asked me, he said, well, what are you showing this year? I says, well, I'm showing a, a new entry-level product for people who are, you know, don't want to spend a lot of money but want some performance. So he wandered down and did a demo, and that year he deemed it the best the, the best sound product at the show and, and all mm. kinds of accolades. And then John Atkinson did a review of it and it just took right off. So nice. yeah, that, that, that's the history of the alpha. And I did an update of it in uh, 99 in uh, around 99, about 10 years later, and then another update 20 years later now. So the alpha has had re really three different generations. The one that you, that, that's behind you, Joe, is yeah. is the latest uh, called the P5. <clears throat> we also have a smaller version called the P3, and there's also a center channel available. And we also have two different subs that are in the series. One's called the S8, and the other's called the S10. That's amazing. So I have mine on these on these just some pretty basic stands. Nothing nothing special with some spikes on there. Dave, what do you think about that? Is that okay with you? How dare you? Am Joe? I doing okay over Spikes. here, or am I am I a, a bad human How, being? You're not a bad human being. All right, right. but yes. to me, that's like putting it on broken glass. Ooh. <laughs> wow, <laughs> it's uh, no. I mean, this is the whole our whole our whole world really breaks down into three things, and I think the first one everybody gets when you put a speaker on a surface, you can excite that surface. Sure. So I don't know whether your table there is like an Ikea table or whether it's 19, 19 inches of granite, but there's uh, there's a question of whether you're exciting that surface or not exciting it, and it'll contribute it'll, uh, with dissonant sound and some level of distortion. The second thing that people get is that uh, the structure boring noise, that the energy will go into that supporting surface and will be conducted onto somewhere else, causing anomalies somewhere or even communication between the speakers causing uh, changes, distortion, and so on. 
But the third one is the one that people generally don't appreciate. And that is when you put a speaker down on the surface, there's an internal reflection that comes back up inside. And you can think of that like bolting a pipe to the wall and hitting it with a hammer. The vibration will go down and hit the wall and it will come back up into the speaker and it'll introduce smear, it'll introduce cloudiness. But when you have two channels, any artifacts that are similar in both channels, we perceive them to be in the middle. Mm. So it causes the sound stage to become two-dimensional. So the heart of all of our products is to, to create that openness and clarity by that high degree of isolation and, um, and managing those three elements. Now, in times past, isolation often got a bad rap because you might have vertical isolation, vertical disconnection from the supporting surface, but laterally you weren't maintaining the speaker. And so there were losses as the driver goes forward, the cabinet goes back, the net result is something less than the driver going forward. So our system has a suction cup-like effect on the bottom to hold it to the, to the surface. We have lateral stiffness inside. There's three elements. There's no one single path that, that connects from the speaker to the supporting surface. So we have that high degree of isolation and we manage to, we don't colorize at all. We, we're, we're very accurate in that way. I'm laughing here because Chana and Ron are both showing <laughs> two different products here. Showing <laughs> well, what are these? What better. do you got there, Chana? What do you got there, Ron? The the, the Vanna White. Uh, yeah. <laughs> All right. So the big question: Which one looks better? Which one presents better? Oh, yeah. hmm. Well, the top, the one that Ron's holding, the Aureus, they've got a, a suction cup. They've got an isolator on the top and on the bottom, and the isolator on the top connects to the speaker. And the isolator on the bottom connects to the supporting surface. The Gaia that Chan is holding, the top isolator is bolted to the housing, and the housing's bolted to the speaker. So there's even a greater connectivity so, to the speaker. So the Gaia will perform better than the Aurea in uh, in light to light comparisons. Got you, so they Ron. connect like with um, like a like a screw, or how do they connect to the speaker? Like you said, they actually attach uh, to. Yeah, they attach. There's a yeah. yeah they give you, right they give you a whole bunch. Nice. Check of that out. Screws too. Yeah. Yeah. You know, we, have, we have about super cool. About two dozen variations of thread for whatever's required. Gotcha. One one nice. The other one's just a puck. It just goes underneath and uh, and connects to the bottom. Very yeah, easy that's. To I didn't mean to interrupt there. I apologize. Yeah, I was going to mention that's one of the things that I like about this is that you can use these for a wide variety of components. It doesn't have to be speakers. You can use them for turntables mm -hmm. and amplifiers. You name it. Anything that makes noise, mm -hmm. uh, you can isolate it with these, which is pretty handy. Does that work with kids and spouses? Not at all. <laughs> no. So, Dave, you, you've got your work cut out for you, buddy. That's your next project. <laughs> kids and spouses, okay. Just make a big one. They can just put them on there. <laughs> So does does this quick quick question does a suction cup uh, does that work on most speakers because I know some of them have a little bit of a texture to it would that um, ruin the effect if it has a texture on the on the outside? When we say suction cup, it doesn't have to adhere. You don't have to lift uh. the thing and, and hold it hard against <laughs> All it. All right. All right. But, but because it's got um because of that surface, it connects very well to the speaker, mm. and and it'll, uh, the top isolator will be one with the speaker just as the lower isolators on the supporting surface. Wow. And well, again, you... because there's three layers there, 
there's no one single path for energy to pass from one to the supporting surface. So it has a high degree of isolation and it stabilizes it. So it's very effective. And you always rotate it with the logo forward or 180 degrees right. back because right. they're, they're biased inside. It's to get rid of that natural oscillation that's where an object will begin to mm -hmm. rotate around. So it remains good. on axis. And then by managing shape, thickness, and durometer, we control how much it, uh, we recontrol re its reactance for a given weight range. So I'm I'm very averse to stuff that is not backed in some sort of scientific evidence, and that's why I'm not afraid to ask you these questions because I saw your your uh, documentation and you did do a lot of testing in those mm. facilities that we're talking about. But uh, a question I have, and I'm sure you can answer it, is what would be the difference? Let's say you know I see some foam foam blocks that I can buy on uh, Amazon for like sixteen bucks, and that's gonna so you know supposed to decouple my speakers, let's say from a desk or something like that, what would be the difference between what you have and, and those? Well, first of all, any homogeneous material can only work in a relatively narrow range. That if you have, if it worked for the weight that you had, it would only work in a narrow range. Secondly, there's no lateral uh, stiffness, if you like, to manage that, uh, that energy uh, and the direction of the motive force in the speaker itself. And we build our products for a weight range so that they're built. There's different uh, models for different weights. And yeah. you just switch from, uh, you just pick the appropriate one for it. So I think you'll find that there's a very significant difference when you A, B them back and forth. You'll hear the difference straight away. I don't know if, you, do you happen, happen to have that picture up from your, from your document that shows you doing the tests? And with the lasers on the speaker, you had some speakers there and you were using some lasers to see what was happening with them. And from what I saw, the frequency kind of looked similar, but then there was another test that you did where it showed that um, it made a different type of difference that wasn't necessarily frequency response. From my understanding, I, th I thought you were doing some testing with like some bungee cords. I don't yeah. know. If, yeah. Um, I might be able to pull it up too. Oh, if you wouldn't mind doing that, I... My screen just went nutty here. <laughs> I, I'm just sharing a screen um, of Dave's ISO feet on one of the PSB models oh, wow. called the T3. And this is something that David made an adapter for in order for it to work with the PSB T3 tower. Yep. So the PSB's got a M10 stud, I think. And we've got an adapter that goes between their studs. So you use their knob and thread and you just adapt our piece on the bottom let's see if i can share this here share share they're coming in uh let me try to find this particular oh, window to do that we've got a question in the comments that says yeah. uh, from jp rpt rtp says can you ask paul when he will be updating the t3 is there any plans for that? Well, as you can imagine, sorry for the play on words, imagine T3. Um, I'm always, you know, we're always one step ahead of what you see out there. So anytime there's a product on the market, you can bet that there's one in development that oh. will eventually be replacing it. Cool. So I'm, I can honestly say I'm heavy into it, but uh, there's no... There's no timeline at this sure. point. I'm trying to in, I'm trying to uh, implement 
some, uh, and you would expect that, you know, coming from a manu- coming from a manufacturer, right. I'm not, I'm not suggesting that it's going to happen overnight and that it's, sure. yeah. you know, when it's going to happen, but it's, it's going to happen. It works. Awesome. Yeah. And, you know, Dave and I have Great started, question. the reason we're together on this is that Dave and I have started cooperating. Uh, one of the products that we just introduced, which is in our, in our custom series products, it's a in-room custom subwoofer. Mm-hmm. And we're using some of David's um, OEM. He's designed some OEM inserts that I put right in the bottom of the loudspeaker. It's not an add-on. It's part of the insert inside in into mm-hmm. the speaker. And that subwoofer is isolated, which is always a good thing. One thing I, I believe strongly in with Dave's approach is when you think about uh, spikes, for example, that that the idea is that it rigidly attaches itself to the boundary the that it's sit that it's sitting right. on. Let's say it's a wooden floor, and you're sitting in your couch or your favorite chair. When a, when a, an acoustic event occurs, the the beginning of that acoustic event travels from the speaker in air to you, but it also travels through the speaker through the spike, through the floor to you. Yeah. And did you know that sound travels faster in a solid than it travels in the air? Which means that if you've spiked your loudspeakers and you're on a floor like that, you're going to hear pre-resonance. You're going to hear a sound or feel a sound before you actually hear it. So by isolating, I think the acoustic package or the acoustic event that you hear the beginning of it actually is more accurate because it arrives, everything arrives to you at, at the same time. There's no pre-resonance caused by the sound traveling traveling through a solid. So when I ask people about what their preference is, you can hear a difference between the two. I've just explained what the difference is. And plus the bass tightens way up too. Yeah. Well, for, of course, because you don't have this extra lag in the base sure. where you have the initial and then something coming afterwards mm-hmm. like a delay interesting i saw so i saw these first i saw some of your products dave on um on vanity's website i know those guys uh rick uh rick and gary and mm-hmm. they're they're hardcore engineers you know so i figured they wouldn't have these on here unless they actually did something i'm trying yeah. to can you see my screen or no um there we go so this is a, this is uh, your, yeah. So that you want to kind of go through some of this. The image on the left is the anechoic chamber Paul was talking about. That's the smaller chamber, and that's the one you saw the picture of me in black and white. So this, this, oh, okay, this, this, gotcha. this, yep. this is this is a, a, a colored picture. That's that M thirty seven building that he was right. describing. It's yeah, that's what's inside that building I showed you. Yeah. So. The graph on the right, the the anechoic chamber, the output on the right there. Uh, typically, when you run a when you test the speaker, you run it three times. Uh, you take three passes of it, and the variance from run to run is about 0.3 uh, dB. And we take the um, our isolators, and we always test as a baseline against that, and we stay within that three dB. So we. Our goal is to ensure that we're always, we're not colorizing, that we're staying close. We're not changing what the manufacturer's done in any way. 
and we've got great accuracy and clarity all the way down to the bottom. We don't have that suck out at the bottom that uh, that isolators are often uh, notorious for. If you just want to scroll down further. Sure. Ron. Yeah, that, that's just showing uh, the laser vibrometer will take will um, take a, an image, will take a, a movie image, an AVI file, and uh, you can actually see what's going on. You can get the calculations with it. It's just showing the attenuation down through the, the frame of that stand. Okay. But if you continue down further, this is the laser vibrometer. So you see across the top, we've got that same uh, frequency response. And by putting the same free, uh, sweep frequency through the speaker, we can see the difference between the spikes and on our Gaia's. Gotcha. So you see the purple line shows the, shows the spike. Mm-hmm. And it's the delta between them that uh, that is um, that refer that is uh, related to the artifacts and so on that I was describing. Now you might think, you know, I'm not really interested in what's causing all these anomalies in the speaker. I'm only interested in the boundary condition, the the connection between the speaker and the floor. So we've created a test rig, and if you go down just a little bit further, yeah, let's see here. Uh, go down two slides, uh, just beyond that, if you would. There you go. So that rig on the right-hand side has got the Gaia's bolted to the bottom. It's got spikes on solenoids so that when we activate the solenoid, it just lifts it up off the Gaia. And again, we try to stay within a quarter of an inch. And then if you look very carefully, you'll see that there's bungee cords. And we can suspend it on the bungee cords and we can switch between those three um, those three alternatives. So trying to keep the height variance at a quarter of an inch, we can see what's happening on spikes on the guys and on the bungee cord. And if you just hmm. scroll up a little bit, you'll see the chart that shows the three of them together. Those speakers look like they're made in France. Those are folk house. Up a little bit, Joe. <laughs> <laughs> up? Is, yeah, right. up. Yeah, up. Is, um, well, what, what's what's other more? Way? What's more? What's more important is there. I think I, I was the one who told Dave to try this experiment. Nice. Yeah, that's correct. Paul said use a solenoid and stop goofing around just removing screws. And- <laughs> He's like, so, you're taking too much time, man. I got to get a lunch. And, and <laughs> it's also trying to keep it to that height differential. The differential. Yeah. That's cool. So now you can see, again, the spikes in purple, mm-hmm. the guy is, and then you can see the bungee cord underneath. The blue the bungee cord is acting very similar to this to the Gaia's, but the thing to note is when it's on the bungee cord, it really sounds like hell. I refer <laughs> to it, I refer to it as sounding like foam, because you can hear all the information, but there's mm. no edge to it. There's no definition. Mm. There's no um, attack to it. Mm. So um, it's obviously not uh, far from ideal. But that's what we're dealing with. Is that that is what's causing the smear. And that's what's causing the sound stage to collapse and become two-dimensional. Wow. Huh. That's pretty amazing. I need to ch- check these out. So so if I have some stands, let's say, for example, would I be able to put yep. your product between the speaker and the stand itself? Would that be okay? Yeah, we would prefer, if you set a bookshelf speaker on a stand, we would prefer to be the resilient layer between bottom. the speaker and the stand. Gotcha. That makes sense. As opposed to putting the guys at the very bottom mm. because we want to be, um, 
we want to relate directly to the speaker itself, the live load itself. Now, if you bolted the speaker to the stand, it's now Unity, and it doesn't matter. You could put the guys at the very bottom at that point. Got it. Pretty cool. You guys have any questions? I've been kind of taking over the whole thing. I just had so many questions already, so I just noticed we're like an hour in. Yeah, no. Yeah, Dave. Dave, I do have a question. What is the difference between isolation and something that would, if I'm using the word correctly, like dampen or dampen something? Is there a difference, and what is the difference? Well, there's different approaches that people have and different materials that are being used. Um, we're, we're, I don't think of these things as isolators. I think of them as devices that are tuned to work in a specific way. Mm. They do have uh, an isomer in them. They do have a uh, compliant material in them, but it's really the composition of the three parts that are making it work. And in fact, they're sensitive to being overloaded because once the two isolators touch each other, the performance falls off really fast. Mm. The bottom end is much more forgiving, but nonetheless, you still have to have enough weight on them to, to get them into the operating range. If you take our largest product, it goes up, it takes a speaker up to 620 pounds. <laughs> so if you put a, a speaker on that that weighed 30 pounds, I mean, to the speaker, it looks like a solid mass. Yeah. So it has to, it, it, there, is a, there is a range that it, uh, that it performs in. Yeah, I think your question was centered around, is it isolating virtually or is it damping? I think what's uh, Dave's, Dave's unit is is taking some of the energy that's tr generated by the loudspeaker and it's it's damping it and it's also turning some of the energy into heat sure so that so that it's reducing the transfer of energy from the cabinet into the floor it's standing yeah and and uh, when it does when energy does go through it it is it is damped it doesn't ring or it doesn't resonate so it's a, a damped isolation, I would call it that. Yeah. yeah, and as a matter of fact, even the curves, the the suction cup effect, not only does it give that suction cup effect, but it gives a progressive rate of change against uh, in weight. So by creating those shapes, we can actually extend the weight range and the uh, and the response. Um, and that's how we sculpt it to make them work. Dave, is there a time and a place for spikes? Is there a time and a place where spikes are the appropriate tool for the job? I mean, my carpet in my listening room was stolen from 1970. It's really thick shag carpet. Um, would a device like yours still be the right tool for the job or in that well, example? I mean, they they well, also Dave, have the spikes too. I have Dave, them. Dave has the platform that you put the unit on, right, Dave? That's correct. So where the, our, our units work very well on a on a tight carpet on a something that's got a very tight nap but once they become too plush they're not stable anymore they become mm. they become flimsy mm. so we have um, a spike disc that has three 15 millimeter spikes grab it. that goes down into the carpet goes down into the into the binding of the carpet and gives you that that, that grip yes. I and, and now you're coupled to the floor and yeah. isolated with the iso from above yeah, that makes sense to me. Perfect. That's mm -hmm. correct. Yeah. That's my only two questions. Thank you. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I mean, are you guys I, enjoying this? You guys, you guys uh, like this uh, this platform? I, 
I, I love it. I, I love it. I could talk for hours. I could listen for hours too. Yeah. Here it is. There right you here. go. Nice. Like, oh, yeah. I see. Oh, it's that is awesome. For Gaia too. That's stainless steel. And then you put a guy on top of that, right? Right. That's right. Boom. In fact, gotcha. the guy will stick to it. It's like the suction cup of fat. Yeah. Okay. Gotcha. It'll wow. actually connect right to it. Wow. Mm. That's awesome. All you have to do, all you have to do is lick it. And then you can stick it <laughs> on. You know, Demo, demonstration, Shauna. Demonstration. Shana, give, it a good, give it a good squeeze and it'll stick. <laughs> That's funny. Hey, yeah. Paul, I've got a, another question from a listener regarding um kind of back there i looked it there, there you go, go. <laughs> did it work? Uh, i switched I, over to ron oh, <laughs> that while hilarious. i did the lick yeah no it works while you did the lick <laughs> only Jana. how did it taste though no comment <laughs> all right so um and i won't i won't say the last name because i'm i'm sure i'll just butcher it but martin says um do do dynamics get considered in the listening test and if so, how? Like when back when we were doing the the three people doing the listening test, the double blind test, do they do you ask them about anything in regards to dynamics? I think is his question. I, did, I, yeah, did you have there, a timestamp for that, Mike? I I, uh, I don't know, Chana. Okay. It was pretty early. I wish I wish I could show you a screenshot of the score sheet. Mm, but yeah. what what I will do is I will forward the score sheet to Joe. Oh yes, and Joe can display it with some explanation, and that will answer. Cool. Kind of, I'll also include the instruction to listeners. Okay. That we give listeners and a score sheet. Nice. To show. To show. Um, I'll also um, maybe send. I have some other media that I can send around the listening test. So I'll send them to Joe. Okay. May, maybe in the future you can maybe bring it up as a subject and. and oh, that's awesome. And, Sure That's people. great. I might. Joe's a little excited. He's thinking <laughs> now, right? For the viewers, how many of you uh, are interested in having me do a review based on that list? You know what I mean? Yeah. So yeah. Well, we'll see. That might be something we can do. Well, it could be what you use to keep your thoughts together when you're doing an evaluation. Right. Because mm -hmm. I love it. it. It's a nice. In fact, it was originally designed to be computer data acquisition, mm -hmm. and the sheet is designed with sliders on it. Yeah. So the user was going to use sliders, but we never really got to that point. I love it. I love that idea, yeah. you know, because when I do the reviews, I try to hit as many aspects as I can. And also, you know, my, I have my own personal biases. Yeah. And so I try to account for those and let people know like, Hey, I like my speakers kind of like this. And so, you know, anyway, I'm, I'm interested in that. And of course I know my room well enough. So I know how stuff sounds in here. Yeah, I'll, I'll, send, I'll send you those documents that you can share with everyone. Oh, yes. Yes, that's going to be awesome. All right. Any other questions from the chat here? Any Anything else? We've got some stuff going on. We've got a lot of questions. We're, we're just going and going today. Festival <laughs> Destroyer is asking, does putting rubber feet under a subwoofer help if you are on wood floor over a crawl space but has carpet? I mean, I, I use a, I use a big platform like that's, uh, I mean, um, Dave, like I'm familiar with your, your products from, uh, my music studio here. Yeah. So I have a lot of decoupling devices. I use one for my big, my Marshall, um, uh, two 12 inch, uh, combo 
mm-hmm. um, amplifier. But um, I do the same thing with subwoofers. Big platform. Um, I got those two, those dual rel 15 inch subs on them now. So um, I would, I, I like the way it sounds. I notice there's, there's a, there's less muddiness in the, the mid to low end, mid bass. Well you, well, you mentioned the Marshall there. We make a product now, the stage one. It's for guitar and bass amps. Mm. And the current version go, is for something that's a Fender twin and smaller, a combo. Mm-hmm. And shortly we'll have one that's large enough for um, 412 cabinets. But not only does it work well with uh, guitar amps and that, but it's very popular for stage monitors. So musicians that are using a stage monitor that are hearing themselves back, mm-hmm. you're not getting that smear, that that muddiness and so on. You've got a very consistent sound from stage to stage. Each stage can be entirely different. And right. so by having that consistency is uh, is very important. So we've uh, so we've launched that now, the stage one. Very cool. Dave, can you make something for the kid upstairs who's running? Like for the bottom of his <laughs> shoes or something like that. I can hear that guy. Uh, Edman, what is your last name? Are you answering Edmund. questions about Dolby Atmos? I guess we can. I mean, we got we have time, a little bit more time. We're do we, getting do close we have, to the end, though. From the crowd, do we have any other questions for these gentlemen while we have them? Anybody out there that wants to ask questions to either Paul or Dave while we have these gentlemen on the show? Yeah, yeah pick their brain mm-hmm. while while they're here. Yeah, Not this, every is, day. this is a pleasure. Well, right, on, on that topic, uh, the customer asking about uh, Atmos, um, we, we PSB has worked with Dolby for many years. In fact, Dolby, their first show, they ever showed their technology because before that time, their technology was recognized through third parties like Pioneer and Yamaha and all the other companies in the last year they had the CES show in Chicago, Dolby showed their technology directly to the consumer, which was, you know, the beginnings of, or in the middle of all the surround sound home theater boom that happened back then. And they actually used PSB to demonstrate all of the multi-channel sounds. They built this huge display with all our Stratus, uh, or uh, we, they used Synchrony at the time, mm-hmm. Synchrony loudspeakers. And since then, I've worked on products that we've adapted for the Dolby Atmos, and in particular, the uh, Elevation Speaker, the uh, Dolby Enhanced Elevation Speaker. And uh, I worked closely with Dolby and their engineers in in not only implementing it, but I created a lot of data criteria that I did at the National Research Council in Ottawa, and I shared that with Dolby. So, you know, I'm proud to say I've had the opportunity to work with with them on developing some of the Atmos criteria and and, uh, continue to do so, as a matter of fact. In fact, Dolby, I'm proud to say, use quite a few PSBs in their San Francisco uh, play. office or their San Francisco facility. We have a question here. Go ahead. I'm sorry. Didn't mean to interrupt. No, go ahead. Uh, From Kanga Empire. It looks like that grill looks familiar. What is that grill from? Looks like a paradigm. One of the paradigm grill, right? Yeah. Yeah. Um, So, yes, from a manufacturing and design perspective, 
what is one detail or myth of products that you'd like to bust? Ooh, that's for you. That's for you guys. Well, uh, I, I get. I guess you. I guess you could. Um, I could disband a lot of myths by explaining what the conclusions that were determined after all of this listening test work was done. There are three basic conclusions. Number one is that most of the people, most of the time, agree on the relative qualities of a group of loudspeakers, mm. which means there's no personal taste when asked, does that sound natural? The second thing we've learned is that musical experience and musical taste are absolutely no prerequisites for being a good judge of sound. Wow. We as human beings all kind of have the same capability. And the biggest, believe it or not, capability does not lie just with our ears. It lies within our brain. Mm. And we all have that built in. And we, we have no way of not using it. Wow. The third thing that we've learned is that a properly interpreted set of objective measurements, the measurements we do in the anechoic chamber, correlate directly with listener preferences. Wow. So that I can, I can actually measure a loudspeaker and I can predict what score that will, that will make in a listening test. Not just that it will, that it will give, give it a high score. I can tell you what number in a normalized number that speaker will score based on its measurements. So that's, they're, they're, that's taking, you know, subjective evaluations and turning that process into a science where it's actually a tool. There are people that we tested that you could put in the listening room and you could have four loudspeakers in there. They would judge all of those loudspeakers and give it a score. You could take one of those loudspeakers and keep it in the test. You could change the three other loudspeakers that are completely different sounding. The listener would go in there and he'll give that same speaker he gave a, a 7.5 to, he'll give that same speaker a 7.5. Wow. That's how that's how accurate these people can be. Wow. That's Man, awesome. I, I'm loving all this. I'm telling you right now. Like for me, this is, I'm just nerding out right here. Yeah. So this well, is this is great. Well, one other thing, you know, that you might find kind of interesting, maybe not coming from a speaker designer, but if you want to share my screen. There you go. Okay, you'll see a, a picture of a, a man and a, a boy. Well, the man, the man is my father, and the boy is me, and I'm standing in front of the workbench that my father used to build that violin for me. Wow. wow. And if you'll notice up to the left of me, up in the right-hand corner of the, yeah. the picture, you'll see the frame that the violin was built around. Oh, like yeah. The vi violin is actually built around a mold and then removed from the mold and the top put on it once it's finished. So um, what I wanted to bring this up for was that Everything that PSB has done has all been based on the love and experience of music. This is not an, 
an engineering exercise as much for me as it is a musical appreciation exercise. And I've spent my whole life starting, I was 11 years old in this picture. And uh, I, I was, I studied violin from a very early age until a fairly, until I started PSB actually, I studied violin. And I made a conscious decision um, when I was about 17 years old to instead of going into music production, which is performing, I decided to go into music reproduction, which is building loudspeakers. So that just gives you a bit of background on how all of this got started. And of course, with my father's interest in woodworking, the first thing I did when I, or the first thing that he and I did when we were in pursuit of hi-fi and we bought our first hi-fi system that I would truly call hi-fi, it was a Rotel receiver back in, uh, the, well, a few years after that, that was in 63. I would imagine uh, in 1965 was when I got into two-channel hi-fi. Uh, I was about to say a smart-ass thing, how you said, well, uh, musical background doesn't matter, but maybe the woodworking helped out a little bit. <laughs> yeah, yeah, definitely. Yeah. Well, the woodworking, <laughs> the woodworking helped, and it, it allowed me a place to actually build my first loudspeakers um, in our garage. And uh, I worked in a hi-fi store at the time, which was near the University of Waterloo, an engineering university in Ontario, Canada, in my hometown, Kitchener-Waterloo. And in fact, that's the university I went to eventually. But when I was in high school, I worked in a hi-fi store, which was really close to the university. And um, the owner allowed me to build panels that had all the holes drilled in it, baffles that had the woofer holes cut out the mid-range crossovers that I built in my garage. I cut up all the wood. I drilled all the holes for the screws. I included the screws and I sold them to university students with uh, as a kit that nice. they could they could build in their dorm rooms uh, uh, back in the uh, early, late 60s, early 70s. Yeah, we have a question. So thank you to, let's see, Hi-Fi Vega, Thank you for the super chat there. Thank and you, he Rush. had a question earlier, a fun little question. He wants to know, he does a lot of car audio stuff. So in the car uh, audio yeah. world, he's he's the man. And he wants to know if you two are using, a if you have a stock system in your vehicles. Here's the question. <laughs> Me? Uh, yeah, I have a stock Bose system in my car. Oh. oh. <laughs> yeah. A four-letter word. You know, in, in my car, I... I, no cussing on here. I prefer, <laughs> I prefer to just listen to um, news. Yeah, uh, I'm, a lot of I'm talk not, radio. Uh, yeah, I'm not a, I'm not a music hear, listener, so to speak. I hear Bose are pretty good for news. Yeah, they're they're excellent for news. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, how about you, Dave? I, I, I actually, the, the, my system isn't that bad. Where I find Bose really has their weakness is they don't pay as much attention um, above two kilohertz that mm. that I that I would I would focus on, um, and the environment is rather hostile and quite reflective. So um, any car audio is a challenge for that matter. But I find that the balance is a little bit airs on the side of being a little spiky at the high end. But other than that, it's fairly neutral sounding. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Dave, what do you got? 
No, it's interesting. I've been thinking about upgrading the, the system in the car, but uh, nope, still original. Still got the same. What, so which hard, which one hard, is it? Pardon? What, what what kind of system you got in there? What kind of system do they have in the Ferrari or whatever? <laughs> <laughs> it's not a Ferrari. Huh? I think it's hard. Uh, hard. Harman Kardon. Yeah. Make some, some beamers. Stuff, Beamer. yeah. Hey, Dave, how would you answer that question earlier about if there's any, you know, myths or things that you would want to bust about your products or products out there? Was Was there anything that came to mind when that question popped up for you? Well, the biggest thing is I think the the world seems to be stuck on two things right now. That's kind of spikes and mass. Yeah. And every manufacturer ships with, with uh, spikes. Sure. Right. And uh, people think when there's some kind of anomaly, the, the spikes aren't seated. And that's the that seems to be the, the baseline. Mm-hmm. And, um, I mean, anytime we go to a show, any opportunity we have, we do A, a B demos back and forth, and the and the difference is just stunning. You'll hear it yeah. straight away. And so gradually, people are changing it. As Paul described, PSB's Paul's working on new projects now that include our stuff. We're talking to many manufacturers actually that uh, that are starting to to bring it, it on. The old the old question might have been: If this is so good, why aren't manufacturers using it? Well, this is twenty twenty. And guess well, what? we we are starting to. Sorry, <laughs> sorry, I haven't done it sooner, Dave. <laughs> yeah, I you know I would love a, to see. That's a, that's a delta change. I would love to Good. see some stuff that you know, maybe some of your your products are maybe not aimed towards. So you know, some of these speakers that I have in here are like ninety nine dollars a pair. Like you know, it wouldn't make sense really for somebody like that to right. to apply those uh, products instead of just getting a more a better speaker, speaker yeah mm-hmm. right so i'm the the p5s here are what 399 a pair you know mm-hmm. so i would love to see something like maybe more, uh, more affordable with some sacrifices that go along with it i don't know you know i'm not gonna try to tell you how to do I, things i, know, I would just yeah. love to see it right well, these guys make, aren't aren't cheap for sure. well we make the mini pucks that go in that yeah. would fit underneath that speaker and they're uh 99 bucks for the set of eight okay. oh wow there you okay. go. That's the, that's the, I didn't know about there's that. Your, there's your answer, Joe. I didn't know I about also, that. I so also want to jump in here and just say something. When there was a show that I once went to with my brother, and they were doing a demonstration of, and I forget the name of the actual platform that you guys offer in different sizes that has the pucks. I can't remember the name of it, but either way, it doesn't matter. What was interesting platform? about what's that? The wooden platform, the butcher block. No, it no, it's um, I think it's one of the products that got you on the map. I think it was, it oh. looks. You're talking about the ISO series, the original. Uh, Thank you. Yes. On the pro side. Yeah. Yes. Oh yeah. Here, I got that pulled up right now. And I think it's important that we bring this up. And I'm, I tell the story because in that room, they were using the cheapest, flimsiest, lamest stands that you could ever imagine. They were using those originals. Yep, those guys right there. They were using those, and they were using very affordable, cheap speakers, and they had the exact same thing on the exact same type of rig, but just with those being used, and they were doing an A-B comparison. And my brother and I were blown away by how much better those inexpensive, cheap speakers sounded on those than just Mm -hmm. on the cheap stands. So I think we got to get past this mindset of, if I have cheap speakers, then I might not 
it might not make a big difference. That was not my experience. It made a huge difference. So can I just want to mention that. Can you bring up the ones that you're talking about that were, are these the ones that we're talking about, the ones that are inexpensive? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Oh, all oh, the ones that Dave was talking about. The, Who has it ni- on the screen? Who's controlling that there? The $99 ones are the mini pucks in the mini top pucks, right there. Right there. Oh, is it on that same thing? Top right. Top go right. back. Go back go one. Back. No. Go back one. Whoever was controlling that. I think Chan. No, it was it was back to the screen previous screen before. that you were just at. Go back oh, to the previous page that you were just at. Yeah. I'm lost. Go go back to the page you were just at. This one? I don't know. Whatever you clicked on. <laughs> you, you I clicked, clicked on, on this thing here. Okay. Well, click on one of them. Okay. And then it was showing like all of them. Technodad. Hey. What's going on? I don't know. Technos having I think you need some IT support. I still what was it called? Mini puck? Oh yeah. There we go. That'll work. We're here to help Techno Dad. <laughs> yes, exactly. <laughs> second, second one. Next one. Second one. Okay. Right okay, so let's see. There, there you go. Oh, ninety nine dollars. Oh, yep. for a set of eight. And that's for eight of them. Mm-hmm. And they're they're for small applications. Gotcha. Yeah, like smaller bookies and things like that. I would so imagine. I could use those on some bookshelf speakers. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay. I'm not kidding, Joey. You should do it because that demo, it freaked me out and it freaked out my brother. It was not a subtle difference. It was a night and day difference. This isn't one of those things where, oh, you got to stand on one foot and lean your head to the side. And no, no, yeah. no. It and was holding the antenna to the right. Yeah. 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 So yeah. anyhow, off my soapbox. Well, yeah, that's no, pretty, I, pretty amazing. I want to try them out. Yeah, it's it's a phenomena that I don't entirely understand, uh, but it has to do with, I mean, the interaural timing of the human brain. In other words, the difference that the left ear can hear between the left and the right ear in time mm-hmm. is about nine microseconds, mm. which equates to a bandwidth of around 45 kilohertz. So uh, an acoustical event that arrives in one ear different by another as short in time as one cycle at 40 kilohertz is the kind of resolution our brain is capable of. Mm -hmm. So it's very difficult to quantify what David's product is doing, but because we can hear in, in such a small time domain that we hear those differences because of the interaural accuracy between both ears. I mean, well, that's, how, that. that, that's how we localize things. Yeah. Maybe uh, can I tell a, let me tell a quick story that I think will, will put that in perspective for you. We were invited to the Boston Symphony by John Storick. John Storick is a co-founder of WSDG. Are you familiar with him? He did the original Electric Lady with Jimi Hendrix back in the 60s. And they've got offices in New York and around the world. They renovated the control room at the Boston Symphony, and they asked us to come to put the guys under the B&W speakers in the control room. So we listened to a vocal, James Taylor, and we listened to a symphony piece. And then we put the guys underneath. And as soon as we put them, stood the speakers up and started listening, didn't matter where you were standing in the room, everybody was startled at, at how everything had opened up. And the reason why it was so interesting for them is that they have over 40 microphones in decatries hanging from the ceiling over the orchestra. Mm -hmm. 
-hmm. and they're very cognizant of the shape of the orchestra. And as one engineer described it, they didn't realize how collapsed their soundstage had been. One engineer described it as the phantom image was being projected against a pane of glass. And now we've opened the window and it's got three dimensions. So think about those microphones. Any one position on that stage is picking up numerous mic is being picked up by numerous mm -hmm. microphones. And they're actually hearing the timing differences in this three-dimensional envelope. And that's all the timing. That's the timing that Paul was just describing. Wow. <laughs> so it's not just a question of the um, accuracy, the clarity. It's the, it's the dimensional, it's the three-dimensional uh, natural uh, presentation of that sound. And David, wow. what, what you need to do, David, is create a metric that, is, that can measure that and quantify it. That, that's, that's the hard part. Because we're yeah. dealing, we're dealing with a very. I mean, once you get into a realm where things are pretty good, and you know, gilding the lily is really takes the edge off and does all of these wonderful things. If you isolate the loudspeaker the way Dave does, and it's something that Dave has done, you know, measurements on how it affects the actual frequency response. But these are not just frequency response related; they're also time domain related mm -hmm. and those are things that are very difficult to quantify in respect to how we perceive them and in what what ranking or what so what, is, how much it influences what we, we we hear am i right in saying it this way even though our ears can't go let's say past 20 kilohertz when we're a baby or something like that but you're saying our brain can resolve the difference at 40 kilohertz uh, between what's happening in one ear versus the other. Is that, well, what, am I kind what, of getting that right or not? What I'm saying is that the interaural capability of detecting a sound that arrives in one ear compared with the time it takes for the sound to arrive in the other ear, we can resolve the time domain down to nine microseconds. Meaning it, it doesn't mean that our frequency response is that wide. It mm -hmm. just means that the arrival, if there's a if there's a stimulus at 1,000 hertz in the left ear, mm -hmm. and then a stimulus nine microseconds later of one kilohertz in the left ear, we can tell the difference between those. Two. Wow! It's just amazing. I've never even considered that. That's why. Look at Ron. Look at Ron. Yeah. <laughs> if well, I had a going on over there, drop for Paul, I would drop it right now, and we just end the show. Game over. <laughs> well, well, we're in an hour and a half. That was awesome. We need to do this again. I don't know if you guys enjoyed this or not. I did. Yeah. Well, that was, well, that was good. What I'd like to do is maybe do some do some uh, things that are very more focused on specific aspects of maybe speaker design. Yeah. Listening, maybe what we listen for. Yeah. What what music what music is good to listen to and what what to expect to hear when you're hearing differences with this music. And, yeah, and I, I think listeners really would appreciate and for me what what all of this is all about is not listening to loudspeakers. It's music appreciation. Mm -hmm. And in all in all genres, my background of course is very classic, classical. But I, I enjoy all kinds of music and listen to all kinds of music. And, you know, I, I performed and I even played in a band for nine years part time. 
So mm -hmm. I've, I've played everything from Led Zeppelin to Glenn Miller. Awesome. Well, awesome. let's definitely do that. I mean, this is a great overview and an introduction to the folks who don't know you. And so let's continue on this. Let's go into more detail in future podcasts. I would love, love to do it. It'd be great. Offline, Joe, you know, we can talk about some of the topics and then you can maybe even uh, solicit your readers to come up with questions. topics. That, that yeah. we, well, not just questions, but maybe a topic, like something that they're interested in understanding better. Not sure. <laughs> sure. You know what this feels like to me? It feels like the first day of a, a college class. Uh, class and you go in and you hear what it's going to be about and you're like this class is going to be awesome oh, that's yeah, how it yeah. feels i feel like this is an yeah. introduction and i'm just very excited for the next class okay. yeah yeah cool. cool yeah so well let's do it again we'll stay in touch i know you're going to send me some stuff so i'm excited to to get that and um of course most of us are here at home and so this is something that we can do for Crazily, you yeah. guys out there hopefully you guys are enjoyed this as much as I did. And I can tell Ron was really enjoying it. And yeah. so um, you guys know, I did the announcement that uh, I'm going to have to do a quick plug that I'm doing an online trade show, uh, something very different. But I think if you look at what we just did now, you kind of get a taste for what is possible. So yeah. we're all, you know, I'm here by myself. You guys are sitting by yourselves, but we were able to exchange information. I learned so much. Connect. In this past hour and a half, it's unbelievable. So I think we can do that and some. And uh, yeah, hope to see you all. You guys there? Yeah, guys, and we'll 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 be leaving all the links to these guys' sites and information mm -hmm. down below. So make sure you check that out. Um, you know, before you leave, so bookmark them. Check out ISO Acoustics PSP speakers as well for sure. Perfect. Wonderful. Thank you, gentlemen. Thank Thanks you. Thank you. you. Okay. FOMO. See you yes. soon. Hey, take care, guys. I'll, let me do a quick outro here. Go ahead, Shauna. You're the best. Where's Second the best, but he can do it this time. That's fine. <laughs> <laughs> there it is. Oh, yeah. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you so much for joining us on the Daily Hi-Fi Podcast with special guests Paul Barton and Dave Morrison from PSB Speakers and ISO Acoustics. My name is Shauna D. I am the Techno Dad on behalf of Michael, Joe, and Ron and the Daily Hi-Fi crew. Thank you guys so much for watching, and we'll see you next Monday, 4 p.m. Pacific Standard Time. Peace. Thank you. Bye-bye. Roll the credits. <laughs> <laughs>